Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Amen. Hola, amigos. Hello, hola. This would be a wonderful moment in my life to have Spanish. Dios te bendiga. Well, you've already surpassed my my knowledge. Yes. God bless you. I know Spe- Feliz, Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. How you doing, Brian? Did I get to the uh, the Christmas class? Huh? Well, we were we were quoting all the Spanish we knew, and Matt Matt outshone me. But Matt actually used to be have business associates that were Spanish speaking. And someday he can tell you about that. I think you needed Spanish in your line of work, didn't you? Uh, just a rudimentary, rudimentary knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> I had the same situation. I'm not sure the nature of yours, but I learned most of my Spanish from working at a, a produce market. Oh, uh, that's sort of yeah. like what you did, right, Matt? Yeah, it was a different. It was a different uh, type of produce, but yes. Okay, gotcha. gotcha. <laughs> but as I was just reading in Paul in Paul's blog, you know, all things are being restored, even me. Yeah. Well, me too. How you doing, Brett? Good to see you. Did you get your new uh, new sound system? Oh, well, it's very quiet. I I would give you lots of advice, but my technical know how is practically zero. Like when you said. Hola, or whatever you said in Spanish, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 it didn't go very far. I'm, I'm about where you are, Paul, <laughs> technically and with Spanish. <laughs> David, how you doing? I'm doing. That's yeah. the main thing. I know Matt, he is taking his wife out, so. Uh, we are married to Christ alone. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. And your, lo- your wife probably couldn't go out to dinner tonight or something, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I know how that works. This class is first for me, Paul. I, uh, I told I told her about a half an hour ago uh, that my commitment was to this class tonight. Um, yeah, of course, yeah. She was on her way out the door to work, but <laughs> you got to keep them in their place, David. <laughs> I will try, Jonathan. I'm still. I know that I really didn't address your original question. I hope I can tie everything up into a package tonight. And that is that in this section of Ephesians, but maybe throughout Ephesians, we have some of the most exalted language. You know, Ephesians and Colossians are very similar in this, of Christ being all in all. I think we talked last week about recapitulation, a kind of cosmic recapitulation. And then at the same time, we have some of the most profound depictions of evil. In other words, the prince of the power, the air, uh, principalities and powers, the the picture in Ephesians 6. And I think those two things go together, and that's what I want to tie together tonight. That is, I think the the implication of the, the highly exalted Christology that we get in apocatastasis or in the, the idea of a reconstitution of all things is addressing evil and the nature of evil. 
That is, I think we're actually getting to a kind of ontology here. I'm going to say something tonight that I, I can't back up yet. And that is, I think that, you know, we have the notion of creation ex nihilo in Scripture, and Paul compares creation ex nihilo and resurrection. There is a particular ontology that goes with this that almost, I think the implication of it when we say recapitulation or apocatastasis or the idea of participation, what exactly, you know, I think part of the thing that we are participating in is our own deification, or to state it differently, our own creation. I know that sounds a little bit funny, but I think that's actually the ontology. I, I won't work that out for you tonight, except in as much as I do, I think the psychoanalytic stuff helps us to conceive of how that might be the case. And I'll, I'll come back to that. First of all, what is the, the, the failure to recognize the apocalyptic, cosmic, all-inclusive nature of who Christ is, that is not removed from the kind of imminent frame that constitutes evil. So the way in which we're describing evil is, in fact, then this attachment or reification or the attachment of a fullness of meaning to that which cannot bear that meaning. And there is a sense that, you know, in, in as much as any of us, if we fail to understand the apocalyptic nature of who Christ is, that we're in danger of doing that very thing, I think that that's partly what happens in a penal substitution or those kind of failed forms that is not simply a problem with the atonement, but I think it creates a whole series of problems. And all of this, the idea is that we can partake, we can participate in this fullness of meaning in Christ. We can take part in the whole, in this cosmic order. And this then is very much tied, the, the crux of this. I did, I put up a couple of articles on the flesh and the role of the flesh, both negative and positive. You know, the negative aspect of this is we can take the flesh, and that's what he's describing. You know, there's nothing more fleshy than circumcised or uncircumcised. But we could do the same, you know, Paul does the same thing with male and female in Galatians. And, and actually in Romans. The picture is that in these symbol systems, you know, that clearly it's the circumcision is the inscription of the law in the flesh. We touched upon this a little bit, the idea of writing over the biological body with a sign system. That may sound strange to you, uh, but isn't that exactly what circumcision is? And it isn't circumcision and uncircumcision a type or a prototype, the archetype of the thing, the universal problem that Paul is illustrating. And so that's the, you know, that's the opening here to Ephesians 2. He talks about you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I think we can describe that, and I think that Paul, the, the metaphysics or the ontology that Paul is describing we're able to describe that in some detail as to how that works. And I think we can approach it from several ways. Paul is approaching it here from a, a an ethnic or a Jewish understanding. But he says, we walk that in which you walked according to the course of this world. 
well, obviously he's talking about an imminent frame, that here is a system that doesn't account for the world, but the person or the identity is accounted for within the world. And then he connects this with evil. I assume the prince of the power of the air, uh, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, I assume he's describing raw evil here, you know, whether it's demonic or the devil or just the the spirit of rebellion. And notice that he doesn't, uh, in one of the pieces I put up, you know, who who's saved? Well, part of Paul's identification here is that everybody, in other words, all of us walked in this way. That we've all we're all sons of disobedience. These aren't the people that, you know, in a as in a Calvinist system, oh, these are the people that are going to hell, and then them other people. No, this is everybody. And of course, it's precisely these people, the ones who were dead in their trespasses, that are among the saved, including Paul himself. The picture here throughout is, I, th I think we can't lose sight that Paul is talking about agape love, that because of his great love, and what, it, you know, this is the love of God. I'm just going through the first few verses here to lay this out. He made us alive together, and then notice he's going to end this with the Spirit. We've did this a little bit in the previous class, but actually I noticed that David Bentley Hart does the same thing. It notices that with somebody like Irenaeus, but I think it's just it's just Paul. When Paul talks about the Holy Spirit, it's not clear what we're talking about sometimes. I think in this context that he, he does have in, the, in mind the Holy Spirit, but sometimes you can't tell. And I think that ambiguity is purposeful. That is, is he talking about a spirit, human spirit, or is he talking about divine spirit? And I think the point is that distinction is already illegitimate. That is, if you go back to Genesis and you picture God breathing into the first Adam, you know, the, the, that, that is God's breath, but you can also read that as spirit, you know, the high uh, And Hart's point about Paul, but actually Hart is just repeat, repeating Irenaeus here. I think he's repeating origin, a lot of the church, early church fathers. That spirit is always God's spirit. That is, the life that we have is always life in God. It's always participation in God. You know, that is brought to a culmination then. Uh, clearly in this passage of being seated at the right hand of God. What we're describing is over and against a typical Augustinian notion. You know, that in Augustine and then in Western theology, there is this nature-grace distinction. What I just said undoes that. In other words, if the Spirit is always God's Spirit, if life is always God's life, there is no nature-grace distinction right? And so this is what Augustinianism, but I think also Roman Catholicism. And this is an unfair characterization because then the Nouvelle theology and, you know, there is a kind of turn away from a classical Thomism. The, it is a key marker, I think, of the difference between what is legitimately called East and West, uh, that there is no nature-grace duality in the East, but the, a lot of Western theology, and very much inclusive of Protestant theology, that very simple idea that I just opened with, the Spirit, the thing that completes us, the, the tripartite part of ourselves, is always God. 
that we're always completed, or the human image is always completed in and through the Spirit, and that Spirit is always God's Spirit. That is a pivot point. You know, that just describes this role of the Spirit. It's certainly the completion of our humanity. In other words, we don't have humanity apart from the Spirit, but that that fullness of humanity is already a participation in deity. I think we're made you know, this is what we were made for. I'm not advocating any kind of innate immortality. This is exactly not that. This is an immortality given to us in and through God, God's Spirit. The, the, the thing that the, is death or walking according to this world is the squelching, the denial, the cutting short of this participation in who God is and who we are. That we are sin is that which is shaped, you know, by the limits of the world. And what that partly means, it's an incapacity to account for the world. And we take the world as complete in itself. We take the, uh, the world as a finite whole. And within that, you can do any number of things. Paul is going to do this in this section. Oh, I'm wondering if the, you know, in your latest blog, you were describing how Oftentimes in theology, there's sort of a gap posited between, you know, subject and object, or you, you sort of run it down in the blog that there's all sorts of gaps that are kind of assumed when we're talking about likeness and all these different words. And you do a, a really good job in your blog of kind of running that down. But based upon what you just said about the relationship or the ambiguity between human spirit and the divine spirit, I can only wonder if then consciousness itself is already always a participation in God. Uh, that reality itself, that participation in consciousness and reality itself, you know, the only gap that comes into it is of our own making, right? Uh, of our own participation in death, sin, alienation from the life of God, but that, you know, naturally, quote unquote, uh, what we are is already you know, a being consciousness without what you described there was like the, it, uh, that a lot of the theology, there's like sort of a gap that's posited at the beginning. Yes. That's always already there. But it sounds like what you're describing is, is the opposite that there's actually a contact that there's a contact point or a participation just by virtue of our being conscious or, or sort of existent existence or, being, you know, sort of alive in the reality that we call human being. That's it. I don't know if, how many of you got to read the article. I I had it there online, actually referenced Michael Henry. And Michael Henry is a, a theological, philosophical thinker that actually works this out. In other words, what we're describing might be described as a phenomenology of the flesh that we often picture the flesh or we often picture human knowing in a kind of Cartesian sense as a step removed, you know, that there is this gap. I'll come back to Michael Henry. Jonathan, I know you read that article. That was in the article on on the flesh that that I quoted it back. Is that the one you're talking yes. about in the answer yeah, yeah, there? Yeah. yeah. And so, Matt, what you just described, I think that's key, and I'll try to, uh, what I'm aiming at is to run that down. That is that we're in a, a way of saying this, 
is that human phenomenology, or in in terms of human understanding, there's a or, uh, first order participation in reality. And I think that that often the way that this is the nature grace duality. Oh, that oh God God exists in imminent and economic trinity, and we don't have access to the imminent trinity. I mean, there's a bit of you know obviously we don't, it's not the claim that we have access to all of who God is but we have access to who God is in his eminence in Christ, and that access is then a part of the phenomenology of the flesh that's given to us in Christ. Is what you're talking about with evil, is it, is it just a, uh, a lack in the way you're speaking about it? Like it's just a lack of the full goodness of God, our full communion with God, or I mean, there's probably a lot of ways to say that. When Paul talks about in Ephesians 1, you know, that you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you walked. And, and you say we're all, all of humanities in that state, you know, Paul's including himself. H- how does that relate to kind of traditional ideas about the fall and, you know, the fall before the fall uh, with a satanic being or what, whatever in the garden? And I don't want to get you too far derailed, but I'm, I'm trying to no, no. understand what you're saying there. So the typical picture, you know, if you did an Augustinian picture, or I think what is a typical Protestant picture, is that nature in some way, you know, the, the fall was a fall into, you know, they had sex. You know, that's actually what Augustine is thinking about. That it's a kind of fall into the natural realm. As if the nature, nature is itself already a step removed from God's grace. So that to be natural or to have natural desire or to be subject to the the body to what augustine is thinking he's he's thinking in sexual terms you know for him everything was sex and so the way that people procreate there's something sinful in that and that sinful desire i think that the fall was uh, uh, is not a fall into nature but that is unnatural that there is a skewing of what it means to be human there is a skewing of nature. There is a subjection, as Paul describes it, to futility. There is a subjection to death that is not at all natural, but it's unnatural. And so when we talk about evil, that's precisely, yes, you've described it right, that there is no gap. You know, nature doesn't produce a distance from God. There is something that we have put upon nature. And the way that I'm about to describe it, that we, I did a little bit last week, that we put upon our bodies, that it's almost that in our, in our own selves, you know, the dividedness of the mind, the dividedness of the body, but also that human dividedness between Jew and Greek. None of that's natural. That's all unnatural. That's all a twisting of nature. God pronounces the world good. He just says that, well, you know, this is good. I think the the thing that is happening with human beings is we are really co-participants. You know, that's the idea that we're co-participants in creation, our own included. And that's the sense. You described it right. That, you know, Michelangelo does some sculptures in which you kind of have the guy that he's he looks like he's ripping himself out of the stone, you know, that he's emerging from stone. That's the way I kind of picture what's happening to us. The thing that is being undone is not anything that God has done to us or anything that has been created, 
or anything that is natural. And so this is going to give us a very different view of, of you know, all the natural realm, the body, sex, you know, the cosmos, that there is this natural realm that's perfectly good and perfectly good even for communion with God. So the discommunion that is definitive of evil is unnatural. Nature is not over and against grace. Grace is always then part of, nature is always graced. And we are the ones who, you know, the gap is there in us. And that's what the psychoanalytic, I know the psychoanalytic stuff just may sound strange to you, but if for nothing else, if you just think of it as an illustration of this, and then if you want to say, ah, that's too, that's too strange, but at least it's an illustration of it. The picture here is that sin, that we take what is finite and we make it infinite, right? That we give, we misdirect meaning, and then Paul is going to connect that with exponential desire. What is desire, you know, rightly attuned? The desire is a desire for God. You know, and this Augustine got it right, that there's an empty place. And when we put that desire on something else, that obviously it cannot bear that weight of meaning, it can't bear that desire. And so Paul calls this being godless in the cosmos. You know, that's a, a kind of lonely phrase there. And I think the idea is that the semantic load that we would put, he's actually using the word flesh, the semantic load that we would put on the flesh, it cannot bear. This is where I depart from heart, but anybody who would say that Paul has a denigration of the, the flesh. No, Paul's not, Paul has no problem with flesh per se. And even in this chapter, obviously Christ comes in the flesh and undoes the predicament that we're in in regard to the flesh. The problem is not with the flesh per se, but it's upon this semantic load that we would put upon the flesh, on this misconstrual, this misapplication, you know, of the law, if you will. Maybe it's not a good illustration, but, you know, I think this is the LGBTQ. I think it is illustrative of what we always do with sexual identity. That is, we can load that, we can always overload that identity. We can over always overload the biological body with a meaning that is not inherent to the body. I think we do that with male-female. And, and that's Paul's point, I think, in Galatians when he says no longer male nor female. That is, that we might attempt to find meaning in those binaries, in those opposed pairs, and f give it a final meaning when, in fact, the final meaning of these things is to be found in the body of Christ, and body is the right word, in the flesh of Christ. And Paul's going to use sexual metaphors, by the way. He uses a sexual metaphor here in Ephesians. He uses a very explicit sexual metaphor in Romans. The sexual metaphor is that, I think it's a metaphor, but it, uh, the idea is that it is illustrative, and one of the best illustrations we have of the unity that is attained in Christ. So I don't think that's a mistake, that the way that we would get messed up may involve human sexuality. But you could name that any number of things. I think that's what he's doing with Jew-Gentile. You know, for what's the Jewish problem? Is there something inherently wrong with being Jewish? No, it's that the Jews attach final, ultimate meaning to Jewish identity. That becomes a kind of closed system.
and Paul's going to talk about not just himself, you know, this is his problem, that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, you know, as he excelled in Judaism, he became more evil in persecuting the church. And he's going to describe being completely subject to the law. But you could do this with any, I think this is the problem with both whiteness and blackness, that if that becomes the, uh, we can put a semantic load on that, that it cannot bear. But so too with any, you know, male, female, slave, free, you know, is the illustration. Uh, I think this is what Wink is calling the domination system. That is, this is inherently an oppressive system that involves redemptive violence. And this is what Slavoj Zizek, this is the psychoanalytic stuff. Let me see if I can do this better than I did before. That he's describing this redemptive violence as part of the human psyche, this violent sacrifice. And the original sacrifice in a psychoanalytic understanding is actually the sacrifice that the individual, the sacrificial relation that an individual has with themselves, with their own body. This does fit with Paul's picture in Romans 7 of I do what I don't want to do and what I, and, and Zizek is just building on that. So if it gets too strange, well, we just go back and say, well, it's just an illustration of what Paul's doing. And so in this, the ego is the word Paul uses. It's just the word I. And then the superego is called the symbolic, is the what, Matt? What else would we call that? Or David? David, you are an official graduate of the Forging Plowshares program and now exist at a, at a higher level. And that higher level um, is just my height so <laughs> uh it's the, the symbolic is just the law in paul and i think symbolic gets it the way he's using the word law in other words this, there's an ambiguity around the way he, he wh what does he mean by the law uh does he mean the mosaic law I, I i think that the ambiguity again serves paul's purposes because he's describing a universal problem that all people have with law what law well, this symbolic order that functions as a law for all people. And that, if you want to spread that out, this in is language at one level, that our entry, that, that I've talked about a kind of reification of language, that is the, the taking the letter and clinging to the letter, and Paul says the letter kills and the spirit gives life. I think the human tendency is to reify language, is to reify law, is to reify the symbolic order. And that can just describe human systems of meaning, right? The nationalism, racism, sexism. In other words, what we would do with systems of meaning is absolutize them. And the, and the, the broadest way, or maybe the simplest way of describing that, is we reify human language. We reify the word. Is that just so strange that you have no notion of what I'm talking about? This is, I think, very neatly illustrated in Anselm of Canterbury's ontological argument. That in the, in the ontological argument, he literally talks about human words as being parallel to the logos, to the word of God. 
And so he literally means that we can do with human words what Jesus, you know, who Jesus is in the Logos. So this is the founding moment in apologetics. It's the founding moment, I believe, in a doctrine of atonement that becomes, you know, it's divine satisfaction that will become penal substitution. And he describes this going in and entering into the place of language interior to the human subject, that the place from which language arises is synonymous for Anselm with Jesus Christ. Quite literally, he's saying the human word is the divine word. And that, again, is just to—it it is wrong on several levels, but, but in a sense, it's a beautiful description of the human problem, right? This is what we would always do. We would reify language. You know, the most obvious example is OM. But it's almost like Anselm of Canterbury gives us his own OM, his own magic syllables, his, his ontological argument— is to think this greatest thought that can be thought. And he says, when you think this thought, you've actually seen God. And then he says at the end of the argument, but what have I seen? I've seen nothing. But he says, God, I know you're there. I believe that's really what we're, what we're doing. You know, it's kind of like you can pull God out of your pocket with the ontological argument. It bypasses the need for the revelation that we have in Christ it interiorizes, it may, creates a dualism between mind and body, and the formula that we get in the Cartesian cogito, I think, therefore I am, is in a sense simply a boiling down of Anselm's ontological argument. In other words, its thought is reified, my thinking is my being, is really what Descartes is saying. If human spirit is already a participation in the divine and if human consciousness in some way is already without a gap a participation in the life of god why is human language different and again don't get me wrong here there's nothing wrong with human language there's nothing wrong with the law there's nothing wrong with being jewish but when we reify it and we make it absolute then then we create a gap I say all this, and then sometimes people say, oh, you're saying language has fallen. No, no, I'm not saying that at all. Language is a perfectly adequate medium for God to speak, that we have revelation in and through you know, Christ. But God has spoken into the world, in and through the created order that he's given us, and it's perfectly adequate. What creates the gap is not inherent to any of these categories. It's just an orientation that we create. The, the way that this gets expressed in psychoanalysis, but I think it's almost there in Paul, the mirror stage, have we talked about the mirror stage? That when the child sees itself in the mirror and it says, that's me in the mirror, it's almost like that's a literal thing. That is, the child sees its bodily image, and this is the way Freud will talk about it. And the only way you can recognize the, the self as an object in the mirror is the entry into language. So that capacity to recognize the self in the mirror is simultaneously, and this is the third category, you know, when we're talking about the ego in 
Lacanian psychoanalysis, or in you know, Freud calls it, he just uses the, the, the word ego, but Lacan calls it the imaginary. And he means that this is an imaginary relationship to the self. It's a spectral relationship to the self in the mirror. I do a couple of articles, and, and Paul uses the language of the mirror. He'll use it in both a positive and a negative sense in conjunction with the church in Corinth. Corinth was a center of mirror manufacturing. And so in 1 Corinthians, he uses the relation. It's like a, it's like a Lacanian picture. Uh, and then in 2 Corinthians, there is a, you know, it, it's actually a kind of Christological understanding. Whether the psychoanalytic part is, again, it's an illustration that we know Paul is going to say, the I, the ego, has been crucified with Christ. What gets crucified with Christ? Is that God's good creation that gets crucified? Is that the reality of who we are as human beings that gets crucified? No, I think it's this self-relation in which we create a kind of imaginary notion. You know, the ego is, is an object, really. The object in the mirror is static. It's incapable of change, actually. Uh, it's incapable of death is key. You know, this the idea of innate immortality I think is very much attached. This is a very Platonic picture of what a, a a person really is. There's always this idea, and of course, we'll relate the ego to the soul. You know that the idea, oh, the real part of us is that. Jonathan, how do you say? Is it the pineal gland? Pineal? How do you? Say, what's the proper pronunciation? Pineal. Pineal gland. So Rene Descartes says the soul is right near the pineal gland. <laughs> that is. There's literally this space, an interior reified space, an object that is the true self, he thought. I think that is an illustration of the lie that is foisted upon human beings. That is one example. I think that we can describe this in a, I, I think there's no end of the way this might manifest itself. But, you know, this is what Lacanian psychoanalysis is attempting to do. This imaginary relationship to the self in which you're in some way removed from yourself. You know, that object in the mirror, there's a spatial difference. It's spectral. It's unchanging. It's in spite of its being having this relationship to language, it in some way is, stands outside of the symbolic order. And that gets at the relationship between the symbolic, the super ego, it's all the same thing the superego, the law. That is that we see ourselves in subjection to the law, in a, a failed understanding. And it's this kind of punishing relationship. You know, this is what Freud is talking about, the superego and the death drive, that we have a kind of masochistic relationship to ourselves that produces the self-destructiveness, masochism, hysteria, neurosis, He's going to relate it to the same thing. Freud is crude in that he's still holding, he's still describing this in biological terms. What Lacan and Zizek are doing, they're describing it in linguistic terms. And remember, Zizek is just saying, yeah, but I'm just illustrating the Apostle Paul here. And I think it's true. What is the uh, corresponding, in Paul's theology, what's the corresponding part to the, the id? <clears throat> is it Christ in me? Yeah, I haven't done the positive part, but 
step one is the corresponding part is death. We've just described a tripartite self, right? This is Freud, but this is also Paul. Paul talks about the, the ego, the I, he talks about the law, and then he talks about the body of death or flesh. You know, he'll describe the it or the id in many ways. Freud ties the death drive to the id. That is, okay. it's, it's this basic instinct. Now, may, maybe it's too early, but we, we can just convert that into what Paul also does throughout his letters. He talks about the human being in terms of a trinity. That is, we cry out, Abba, Father, in and through the Son by the Spirit. The Spirit is obviously displacing death, displacing the id, displacing the it, undoing the death drive. So in place of death, we have life. I believe Christ stands in place of the ego. Okay, that is, well then, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. I was... I appreciate that. that. That makes a lot of sense. But if I got you, uh, if I jumped ahead to what you no, were no. leading to, I'm sorry. No, no, that, I, I think that's fine. In other words, what I'm describing is a perversion, a failure to be human, to be fully participate in who, who God is as Trinity. Gotcha. And so we're describing an obstacle to who we are. And whenever Paul is describing sin, God is not Abba, right? God is identified completely in and through the law. In fact, in, in chapter 7 of Romans, he's just talking about the law. And then ends the section, you know, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then chapter 8 begins, thank God he has rescued me in and through Christ Jesus. And then he brings in the Trinity. And he does the same thing here in chapter 2 of Ephesians. We're talking about a Trinitarian relationship that fulfills or completes, or th this is who we are as human beings. This is the sense in which we bear the image of God. And so I think at the uh, simultaneously we're describing how we can obstruct that image and describing it very specifically and how it is that Christ overcomes that dividing wall of hostility, that enmity in the flesh. And so I'm just describing the enmity that takes place within us. Well, I have, um, I'm trying to track where you're, you know, where you're taking us. So we're, um, we're talking about unity, you know, in Ephesians, right? You're describing that unity in a number of different ways. You're saying, oh, you know, it's recapitulation. It's apocalypsis. It's, um, you know, we can talk about what we do is we posit the gap. And I follow with all that. You said an interesting thing the other day in class, you said, you know, the dividing wall of hostility is what Paul talks about. And that wall is the law. And so you have another gap there, right? The law can pause a sort of a gap between us and the divine, right? Or death, obviously, posits a serious gap, you know, uh, uh, understood in a certain way, sin, all these different things. And so I'm wondering, though, you know, with the thing I was saying earlier about Anselm and language that I wasn't trying to do a gotcha there. I was really trying to say, if language is by definition a symbolic order you know whether it's human words writing it's a it's a symbolic system that requires interpretation i'm trying to sort of talk about that with what we said earlier in the class with yeah but really there's an originary goodness there is no you know the consciousness itself that 
human spirit itself is already united with God, you know, but that we posit the gap. And then what you said is, is yeah, and we do that with language. It's not that language is bad. It's that we reify language, that we make it uh, carry a semantic load that it can't, whether it's with identity or just language itself. And that that's what sort of disrupts the unity of, you know, call it like the divine in here and the divine out there, Atman and Brahman, however you want to talk about whatever that means that, that, you know, that there's the subject and object and there's a gap there, right? I guess my question through all trying to track and make sure that that's what we're saying is though, is yeah, but whatever that interpretive medium is, right? So, so even with consciousness, you know, there really is the in here and the out there, they do seem to correspond, but it requires interpretation. So whether you interpret using, you know, human words or language or ideas or whatever, and then you have human language, which already is a symbolic order that's mediated to us, like in a divine mode in the scriptures where God is giving us a sort of divine word. But of course it requires interpretation and it requires, in other words, like there does seem to still be uh, like a bridge that's needed because you can misinterpret it, you know, reality, you can misinterpret and call it nature. I can look outside and, and I can, you know, uh, see something and, and be deceived by it. With language, there comes lies. You know, there, there's there's a whole level there, again, of a sort of um, gap, right? Mm-hmm. That's positive. So, so I guess what my question is, is that obviously for St. Paul, Christ is that gap, is that bridge, right? Like, that's what you're saying is that Christ is that interpretive bridge. He is that bridge between the self and the other the human and the divine, the human word and the divine word. But it, but language for me is the harder one. And the reason why I'm asking this to you is because you're very interested in Wittgenstein and language and Lacanian, you know, notions of language and Zizekian sorts of, uh, you know, uh, his understanding of language and all that. And it's it's important because this is the mo like this is the logo, right? These are the logi. These are, this is the, lo- this is the way we are, are human, right? Is in and through our ability to communicate to interpret uh to to you know in in language which itself is sort of an interpretive framework or it requires some sort of gap because what i'm saying right now you might not be understanding or someone else might be understanding it differently or or whatever so all that to say it's hard to track on how we actually know that what we're corresponding with is actually reality does that make sense yeah, and I, I think the key thing here, uh, and I may this may not sound real profound, is the way the way in which we reify language is we we make it an object, we make it a thing, we make it propositions, and what's happening in Christ and what's happening in the revelation that we have, we encounter a person, and that's the only way we encounter persons is in and through language. I mean the. It, it is, you know, this is this is what relationship to ourselves and to other people and God consists of. It's the encounter and unity of people with themselves, trying, with God and one another. We're trying to be united, right? When I'm talking to you and we're having a conversation, it's just me and you. We're trying to connect, like we're trying to understand each other, to love one another, to share truth, to share ideas, to correspond, to to have a relationship, to become united. So I guess that's what's behind my question. And I cut you off. I'm sorry. But, you know, there's all these different ideas about, oh, you know, we're in a simulation. Oh, we're in the matrix. Oh, we're in, you know, there's all these strange ideas about 
how you know our consciousness or our uh, ability to really understand uh, what's being communicated to us from without uh, you know, is mediated to us. And, and what you're saying is that it's language. I cut you off. I'm, I'm very sorry. But I just want to get that point that at the bottom uh, behind my question is the question really of of love, of unity, you know, because it's it's hard to be two persons in love because you're often miscommunicating and, and, and misinterpreting. And, you know, that there does seem to be, in other words, like a gap, for lack of a better word, to sort of a perfect unity or love that's often mediated by language if not and, always yeah yeah that in other words this thing can go wrong and it can go wrong for all of us and my point is john it always goes wrong in the same way that what i'm describing is the wrongness now whether i cover every instance of this i don't know but the, when it goes right we know we encounter christ we encounter the person of christ and that encounter is you know, I think that's what Michael Henry means when he's talking about a kind of phenomenological immediacy. And I'll come, I'll come to Michael Henry. So yeah, we may be more familiar with how it goes wrong, but I think all of us know that hey, sometimes we actually do have an encounter with with Christ, with other people, that there is peace and unity there, and the language then is no longer, in other words, when we're talking about logos, we're talking about a person, and I think that's the significance. In the beginning was the Word. We've passed from a kind of Platonic, and I think Plato is just the characteristic way of picturing language, that they're going to picture language as a thing apart from who God is, that is, and it can be, and I mean, and this is where the failure occurs. I think that's the picture in that story in Genesis, that the knowledge of good and evil is pitted over and against knowing God. You can, you can have that knowledge in and of itself, and it's just an end in and of itself. You know, in Zizek, the way this gets experienced in relation to ourselves, I think I said this last week, it establishes a kind of alienated distance in which there's a passage from Ha, you know, a being a body to having a body. And this is the way that Wittgenstein will also talk. That is that I think in this understanding we go from, I am not my body, I have it. And Wittgenstein, you know, he kind of makes fun of this whole thing. He says, oh yeah, that's like I go around and say, oh, my, my body is experiencing pain in my body's tooth. He said only an idiot would talk that way. In other words, I'm in pain, and that's that's part of the Wittgensteinian shift. He's getting at the idea that our tendency is to think of language as a disembodied activity. That's precisely the way Plato, and I think much of philosophy, thinks of language. That's the Cartesian kind of disembodied notion. Wittgenstein is writing over and against the Cartesian notion. And by the way, the I, I don't I won't bore you with Wittgenstein, but he is very much on his way to becoming a Christian. In other words, when he's working this out philosophically, he, he understands that this is a, he is coming to belief. He, he confides in his diaries, but he will never confide publicly that he's come to belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I, I believe his philosophy is taking us to the embodied reality 
that he's he's working this out in a kind of his own Christian. You know, there's no way for you know somebody like think of it, this guy, this genius, and he just rejected you know Christianity because of its what he's seeing around. You know, one of his followers, one of they wanted to become one of them wanted to become a priest. He said, "I hope I hope you never become a priest because I know what will happen. One day I'll walk into your church." And you'll be trying to prove to me who God is. And of course, that for him, that was that's not the way you come to belief. That is, that this kind of apologetic distancing is what he's describing. That he himself, I, I'm sorry, I said I wouldn't go get off on it, and then I did get off on it. So the, the linguistic turn that's happening happening philosophically is a reappreciation, I think, then of a Christian understanding of what we're talking about. Right now, I'm describing the negative. So I think the negative is all also illustrative of what's happened. It's happened philosophically, but I think it's happened psychologically, that we in some way lose the reality. You know, in the, in the tripartite understanding of the id, the, what Lacan will call the real, what uh, I think in Paul is the body of death, in a, in a sense, that's the most simple. It's the most difficult and obscure psychoanalytic concept, and yet it's the most simple in another way. All that Lacan meant by the real was actually just the biological body. But he's saying we don't have access to our own bodies. He's really saying we don't have access to reality because it's been laid over with this meaning, with this construct of a kind of second body. And that's what Zizek means when he says the symbolic or the soul has to be paid for by the death, murder, even of its empirical bearer. There's a sacrificial relationship to our own selves. And I think in this, Zizek's following Paul and he describes the process as giving rise to two bodies. This is Paul pitted against himself. The body, which sometimes I, I fear we might think can be reduced to the biological dimension, oh, that actually doesn't enter into psychoanalysis, because it's the body written over. It's the body rejected in disgust, and we're unable to accept our relationship. You know, we no longer except that we are our body. There's a gap. There's a gap. And so me and my body have grown very close lately, but still it's my body, you know. I have this body. And I think what's happening in Christ, the, the language here of being united in Christ, there is no longer, I think the fusion is quite literally that we become one in Christ. And I think we can describe this. And so the way that you know, in psychoanalytic literature, the body refuses to obey the, the soul, and it begins to speak on its own. But that could be right out of the Apostle Paul. I do what I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do, that's what I do. That is that in some way, reality keeps poking its head through. We could describe it as simply as uh, in terms of friendship. Like, I think that's a profound, actually, way to... That's what you're describing. In other words, the gap, what, what makes friends friends is they feel... We have these ways of talking about, like, we're connected, we're soulmates, we're... Right? In other words, like, there's this unity 
there's this, you know, how does that, it's like a second self or whatever you want to call it. Right. But that's the beautiful positive side to me is that that gap being taken away. That's in other words, we're describing theosis, right? The gap being taken away, not only happens, you know, vertically, but it happens horizontally with name, you know, with friendship and love unity, but you're saying it also actually is a wholeness of the self where the gap that we, we, you know, we would be friends even with ourselves. So instead of the appear, you know, you were talking about, you know, we're, we're killing ourselves, we're, we're destroying ourselves, where the superego is um, torturing us and then things like this. In other words, right? Like all this violent, what you're really describing really, I think at the end of the day is kind of like this economy of violence that, that I'm assuming you're, you're going to say that Christ in all these different ways, you know, vertically, horizontally, inwardly, outwardly, depths, heights, lengths, breaths, like the love of Christ is the thing that uh, is the is the balm or the or the unifying sort of the unifying field theory call it or whatever you want to call it right for 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 the con- for our consciousness and our correspondence with reality that's it that is that what you know first of all we we're redefining what a human being is here we're picturing the fullness of what it means to be human as a complete entry into who God is into what the cosmic order is that's apocatastasis that's theosis and it's the realization of this wholeness so that we are what we are is we're truly embodied corporately and that's the body of christ but understand the body of christ then is we're picturing a cosmic order here so what i'm describing in this alienation is how we reduce ourselves how we cut ourselves off from that life the life of the body the life of the body in the way that we were created was made to be the part of the body of Christ. And I'm just simple enough, I just take that literally, that we're talking about bodies, and that it's precisely, you know, this is the strange thing in Zizek. Nobody can ever quite figure out what he's talking about when he's talking about the real. The real is this mysterious category from which the death drive arises. But all he's really describing is this mysterious inapproachable, impenetrable order is simply our cre- our, our biological selves. <laughs> but then what's in, in your last class, you said you use the illustration of the key, uh, the, you know, the Greek letter. So you have a body, you know, the body of Christ, you know, you, you compared it to the cross, which of course you have the vertical, the horizontal, you know, th- we've talked about Gregory of Nyssa and his idea of the, you know, just the the sign of the cross itself. But you, of course, you have a body, you know, attached to in Christ. <laughs> yes. I, I think that we're talking about a corporateness that is cosmic, is divine in its proportion. And anything less than that, then, is a kind of, we'll, we'll experience it. I think this is what the New Testament means, means when it talks about the flesh. I think all I've done for you just so far is just illustrated to you what Paul means by the flesh. That the flesh is what you were just saying is for St. Paul, that whatever Zizek is talking about when he says this mysterious, impenetrable, like uh, place where the death uh, arises and all that. Is that what you're equating those two? Yes. Yeah. The flesh is just this principle that, you know, it's the principle, it is the power unto itself that we can't get a handle on 
Mm-hmm. And, and the, the huge mistake that we would make is to repeat the, the, the problem and imagining the problem is with God's good creation, mm-hmm. with our literal physical body. It has no, I don't believe it has anything to do with that. It has or something to pro- do with that. Or that the problem is with God himself, right? That- yeah, that God messed things up. And, you know, what we really need is to get out of the prison house of the body for the soul to go to heaven. And we're, we picture salvation as a, a compounding of the problem. That's always what we would do, is escape, is put away, is, you know, create this distance with ourselves. Mm-hmm. But, but it's in a weird way, you know, then theology can repeat exactly what Zizek is describing so that the father crucifies the son. You know, in other words, like there's the same economies being described right and and sort of like what's happening between the father and the son but what you're saying you know that that's where a bad theology can take us is we can we can reify that whole problem that you're describing into the life of god and a whole theology can flow out from that <laughs> right am i or am i or am i being silly that's exactly right and that's the that's what zizek has recognized but that's what many people have recognized but when we reify the law, we say that Christ died to satisfy God, to satisfy the law. That is human perversion, religified. In other words, we make, and that's always what religion does. In other words, this is the ultimate human perversion: is we take and we reify language, the law, and even God is subject to the law, so that Christ dies to satisfy the law. God is a pervert according to Zizek, in this understanding. And understand when he says pervert, he means something very specific. It's a psychoanalytic term that is a picture of perversion. You know, Pee Wee Herman stands up in the the theater and exposes himself. You remember Pee Wee Herman? Why why would somebody get up and expose themselves like that? And what's happening in somebody's mind? So when, when we think of a sexual pervert, this is an illustration of what we're talking about. Who, who's, who's he satisfying in this? And Zizek's point is, well, perversion is you're actually pleasuring the one behind the law. In other words, it's, it's a transgressive thing, but the transgression is still a prime orientation to the symbolic order. You may say, man, this, this stuff's getting strange. But, but that's, why, that's why Zizek says the god of the penal substitution is a pervert. He means something very specific there. That is that a psychoanalytic pervert is is very predictable. And so the innermost sanctum, the very core of the unconscious, is not the biological body, but it's this kind of phantasmic screen, you know, this this kind of meaning that Zizek describes as part of the fundamental fantasy. He describes it as the attempt to outpass myself to death. I think that's exactly, you know, one hastens to assume death in the form of the letter or the symbolic. Mm-hmm. The letter kills. The letter's already dead. The letter's dead, and to attach yourself to the letter of the law is in some way to escape death by becoming dead. We avoid death because we're already dead. And so the dead are immortal in that they are no longer subject to dying. I'm quoting Zizek here. I think I could be referencing Paul as well. Wittgenstein ties into this. 
He says the best picture of the soul is the body. It's because there are human bodies that there is a world of communication, and it is by my body that I belong to this world. You know, this is Chomsky. Jim, you asked me this in a, in a class long ago, and in my usual manner, I got distracted. I didn't pursue it. But I think this is the significance of Noam Chomsky. He's describing language learning as an embodied activity. In other words, a child learns language as a process of enculturation. It's like the deep grammar that he pictures as part of the human mind. The deep grammar only comes alive in community, in communication, in communion. And of course, the sad picture is, you know, you all have know about the wolf children, which are true. These children really were thrown out in the woods and suckled by wolves. They think they're wolves. In other words, Mobley, you know, Jungle Book, that's <laughs> that's a happy, you know, story about, you know, but actually the 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 actual wolf children ran on all fours and and barked like wolves. And they died, they all died very young. Recently in the Philippines, a, a parents threw their put their baby in a chicken shed. And of course, the baby came out after a couple of years thinking it was a chicken, you know, pecking. And so the, the, the point is that we only become human in community. We only learn language embodied. That's the significance of the Chomskyan revolution, but that's the significance of the Wittgensteinian revolution. That there, there's a profound sense in which we're dispossessed of ourselves of our bodies as the as the flesh becomes symbolic. And so this is what Wittgenstein is saying happens in a Cartesian system. And maybe in a Pauline understanding, you know, the subject, we become subject to the desires of the flesh, not because we occupy our bodies, but because, because the flesh is written over with a significance, with a desire that is alien to it, that we would achieve a kind of ecstasy. And Paul then describes it as giving rise to hostility, as the self is pitted against the self, the self against God. And so when Paul talks about confidence in the flesh, he's speaking of this objectifying distancing from the center of life. As he, be as he excelled in you know, his flesh, written over with the Jewish law, this meaning that he attached, he, he became evil. And so I think that's really what we're describing. We're describing, you know, this is Eichmann in Jerusalem. What is Eichmann, you know, why did he set up the death camps? I'm just obeying orders. You're using that phrase written over. You know, that's an interesting turn of, of right? That's an interesting phrase that it's like you become the letter. Yeah, that, that Paul would completely identify who he is with the law. And, and think of circumcision, quite literally. <laughs> you know, you're inscribing, you're cutting off part of your body. I think this is not unconnected to, to what we, you know, the circumcised, uncircumcised. Of course, that's, I think, Jewish circumcision was an attempt to save us from. But of course, it too falls into the perversion of the Oedipus complex. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, 
please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.